It's an exciting time for us to continue working through our God with us series. The first series that we have as Hagerstown Church that is in the New Testament. And just a few weeks ago we began that with John chapter 1. And we looked at the fact that God sent his son in the flesh. And that God-man was able to be our savior. And he died in the stead of the elect. It's a beautiful thing. God with us, Emmanuel, he had come. And last week we we looked at the fact that Jesus Christ was tempted. He was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet he was without sin. And because of his victory over temptation, we too can experience victory over temptation. We, We saw the fact that what are we to do as Christians in the face of temptation we use our own strength, even the tools that we've been given, even the things that we've seen our Savior do. Yes, but ultimately, what do we do? We look to Jesus in the midst of temptation. And he is our rescue. He is our victory. And Lord willing, this morning as we look at John chapter 3, we will end in the same exact place. The hope that we have as Christians is not to white-knuckle Not to try harder, but ultimately to look to our Savior because that is our only hope. During the 1976 presidential campaign, Jimmy Carter announced to the citizens of the United States of America that he identified himself as a born-again Christian. I'm a born-again Christian, stamp. That same year, Chuck Colson, the presidential advisor in Watergate, scandal constituent he also found christ and he wrote a book and was published that year best-selling uh, book entitled born again and that phrase began to permeate the culture and before uh, we knew it folks from every walk of life from sports stars to adult film mongols they were claiming to be born again and in some cases the term pointed to a spiritual awakening of sorts but in other ways it was a new lease on an old life It was a new way to think. It was a a way to start again existentially. And the original biblical meaning behind the term had been lost to some degree since that time. And even the church today, to some degree, misunderstands the term in all its richness. Misapply. You can't fully comprehend because of the culture. It's been confusing. So one of my goals today is, as we look at this text, is is to, to, to sweep away all the confusion that's associated with this beautiful term, with this picture, this analogy that our Lord has given to us, and to thereby be refreshed in it. And Jesus, our, our Lord, he speaks of this new birth, this being born again, this regenerate state in John chapter 3. And so if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to, to turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, it should be available for you on the screen as we go through. Here in John chapter 3, we we find one of the most famous passages in all the Bible, perhaps second only to Matthew chapter 7, verse number 1, which is, judge not that you be not judged. It's it's maybe the most known. It's also the most uh, taken out of context. If it's not not number 1, it's number 2. It's John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That that sentence that we love and hold so dear as Christians today is the beginning of an exposition that Jesus begins to unfold. It was based on verses 1 through 15. John chapter 3. And so this morning I want to look at these 15 verses that precede our favorite verse, as it were. So if you have your Bibles, follow along with me as I read. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. The Bible says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I've told you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Would you pray with me? God, we ask that you bless your words. This is the book that you've given to us. This is the revelation, and we trust in it. God, we have no power aside from your spirit. As it works in our hearts, as it enlightens us, as we look at your scripture, we pray that you'd draw us closer to yourself. Jesus, we pray that you would be lifted up. And as you are lifted up in this text, that all men will be drawn to you. We ask these things, Jesus, in your name and for your glory alone. Amen. If it's not already clear to you this morning, uh, I I believe that after walking through this passage, you'll you'll come to this conclusion, that God is the sole initiator of all faith. Specifically, the Holy Spirit works in the life of a sinner to bring him to the place of faith in Jesus. I want to say that again. That God is the sole initiator of all faith. Specifically, the Holy Spirit alone works in the life of a sinner to bring him to the place of faith in Jesus. As we walk through this passage this morning, I think we'll find that. There'll be a few landmarks along the way. There's three big sections that I want to park in, if you will, for a moment. The first one is this, the son knows. The son knows. Actually, as a backstory uh, to chapter 3, we see a little bit in chapter 2, that uh, in the last few verses there, that, that Jesus knows. Jesus knows what's in the heart of man. Jesus knows what's in the heart of Nicodemus. He knows how to answer. He knows how to address. We also will walk into the fact that that the Spirit births. That the Spirit is the one that births us into new life. Lastly, we'll see that the sinner, they are the ones that believe. We, the sinners, we believe. And so first, the Son knows. The chapter begins by introducing us to a man by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and in some sense, he's a ruler of the Jews. The Pharisees were a very traditionalistic, religious party of Judaism. And you may remember that they're the ones that were so often given Jesus grief. And, of course, he knew how to give it right back, didn't he? He knew how to give it right back. Nicodemus was one of those guys. He was a ruler of the Jews. In other words, he had some religious authority. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. The ruling council. And while Israel's under the Roman rule politically... Religiously, the Sanhedrin is ruling them, and here Nicodemus is a part of them. So Nicodemus, he's a Pharisee, he's a member of the ruling religious body, and in other words, he's well-educated, and he's extremely powerful there in Jerusalem. And he comes to Jesus, and uh, as powerful as he is, he comes to Jesus at night. There's a lot of speculation as to why uh, Nicodemus would come at night. Maybe it was because of fear, uh, maybe it was because uh, of anxiety. Maybe it was because it was nighttime uh, and he just that's, he had a busy day. Maybe it's because he was so busy studying the law. That was a, that's an old uh, a tactic of the, of the rabbis to study late into the night. And so maybe that's why he went. We're not exactly sure. We have our own speculation. But this brave, strong, educated, powerful man comes to Jesus. As he approaches him, he offers some appropriate labels for him. He, he refers to Jesus as rabbi. You can see it there. He goes on to call him a teacher that has come from God. All of these things that he says about Jesus are true. 
You might think, well, he, he's given credence to Jesus. He's, he's saying good things about him. He must be a follower of Jesus. The truth of the matter is this, that a Muslim could come to Jesus and say the very same things and would say the same things about him, that Jesus was a good teacher, that Jesus was even a rabbi. Don't take for one second that because Nicodemus comes and approaches him with these titles, even acknowledging that he has some power of God to some degree that he is a follower. You know why? Because one of the most interesting things about this passage is Jesus' response to him. Nicodemus doesn't come asking a question. He comes making a statement, and it it doesn't even seem to have a clear connection, Jesus' response, but he gives it. Jesus begins to answer a question that it doesn't appear that Nick is even asking. That kind of shows us that back in chapter 2, we see this fascinating statement in verse 23, chapter 2. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus can't be fooled. He knows exactly what's going on in the life of Nicodemus. And while there were some who believed, you see, they didn't truly fully believe. And so Jesus was wary of them. He says he knew what was in man. Jesus could see into the heart of every man, it says. And then it introduces us to Nicodemus. And so the thought is, the thought follows that Jesus knew what was in every man. And of course, he knows what is in Nicodemus. He knows where he stands. He knows his status, whether he's been born again or not. If he truly believes in the gospel, if he's placing his trust in that or not. I want to remind you of the reason that John wrote this book. He makes it very clear. Chapter 20, verse 31, this is what he says. Speaking of the book that he's written to the church, he says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life through his name. He wants you to hear and believe the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, and that in him alone, you can have life. As we spend the next few weeks walking through this series called God With Us, I hope that that is the conclusion that you come to as well, that Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of the living God, and by believing in him, you can have life through his name. You see, Nicodemus, he doesn't have the answers. He's unsettled about who Jesus really is. He's not to that point. He knows there's something about Jesus, but he's not to the point of faith, not saving faith. So in a sense, empty. Even though he looked full, even though he looked like he had it figured out, he comes to Jesus. And as Jesus pointed out, points out, he wasn't born again. He wasn't born again. You would assume that he had it all together, a, a shoe in for the kingdom of God. But it would take more than his pedigree, it would take more than his knowledge, it would take more even than his desire to do so. It would take more than all these things to be born again. Nicodemus, with his education, talents, position, and honor, cannot enter the kingdom of God on, by merit of his own social standing and good works, then the question I want to ask you this morning is this. Is there any hope for you? If Nicodemus can't get into heaven on his own, if he cannot be born again in and of himself, is there any hope for you? Is there any hope for me? You say, but I mean well. Do you mean more well than Nicodemus? We love to hate the Pharisees. We love to think them insincere and hypocritical. And while that is the case, is it not true of us as well? There's no hope for Nicodemus in and of himself. Is there any hope for us? Jesus says to him, you must, it hasn't happened yet, you must be born again. And that's an imperative from Jesus. That's an imperative. He's saying you have to do this. And when Jesus says something, especially gives an imperative, should we, should we listen? Of course. We should be concerned. 
Our ears should perk up. It's a requirement for the kingdom of God that all of us be born again, that we experience regeneration. And yet there's no race, there's no religious action, there's no observation that exempts you from this need. So the son knows He knows who's in, he knows who's out, but also the Spirit births. And Scripture teaches us that the Holy Spirit alone works in the life of a sinner to bring him to the place of faith in Jesus. So the Spirit births. In other words, only those of whom the Spirit moves in will be regenerate and therefore truly believe To be born again is to be regenerate. And when when theologians use these terms, what are they saying? Well, Grudem puts it this way. He's a systematic theologian. He says, regeneration is a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. It's impossible uh, to see the kingdom and to enter the kingdom unless one is born again. He must be regenerate. Again, regeneration is a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. But what does it mean to be born again? If Jesus requires that, if it's some new spiritual life that's imparted to us, what is it and how do we obtain it? As we look through this passage, there's there's quite a bit of teaching here about this regenerate state, about this uh, option to be born again. I want to give them to you quickly here. It's this, that they're unsolicited. The life of regeneration is, is unsolicited. The life of regeneration is, is a cleansed life. It's a new life. It's a rescued life. It's an eternal life. And ultimately, it's a thankful life. Ultimately, it's a thankful life. These six compile what it is to be regenerate. So first, let's look at the unsolicited life. It's no accident that when teaching us about the the new birth, about regeneration, that Jesus gives us the analogy of birth. Why would he explain it in such a manner? Why would he use that analogy? I think it's, it's easy. It's obvious. It's pointing to the fact that there is no work to be done on your part when it comes to birth. There's no work to be done. This is what ultimately what he's trying to point us to. It's unsolicited. You didn't ask for it. You didn't even want it. You didn't know you needed it. It just happened to you. It was not done by you. It was done for you. You didn't choose to be brought into this world. Did anyone else get a shiver, you know? You hear your mom echoing in the back of your voice, I brought you into this world, and I can take you out. Right? That's what we, that's the truth. We think of that often. We were brought into this world and it wasn't a choice. There wasn't a counsel. We didn't offer help to the, to the doctor. We didn't hold a light. Nothing. It happened to us. And this is what Jesus is getting at. This is what he's trying to remind us of. There's tons of analogies in scripture that, that could have been used here and throughout life, but he uses this one. And he's pointing out to us that we are inactive in regeneration. We're inactive. Do you, do you recall Brett's sermon from two weeks ago? John chapter 1. This is what he read in verse 13. We're born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's not the will of man that we'd be born again spiritually. It was not the will of, of man that God would even send his son. It was the will of God. It was by his power alone. There's a fancy word I want to give you this morning. It's called monergism. Monergism. The prefix mon, it means one. Mono. Single. Something that, that is one. And then erg, it's a measurement of, of energy. It's where we get our word energy or work. And so if we put it together, it's monergism. It means one working. One working. A monergistic work is, is, is done in which one party accomplishes the task. One party accomplishes the task. The opposite of monergism is synergism. And the prefix sin means with, together. 
So synergistic work is when one or two people join together to bring a task to completion. A synergistic work is a joint effort. According to John chapter 1, according to John chapter 3 and, and numerous other passages in the scripture, we see that regeneration is monergistic. It's not synergistic. It's a work that God is doing alone in the hearts of believers, specifically through the Spirit. And so spiritual rebirth, it's monergistic. Rebirth is accomplished by God alone. Babies don't offer assistance in decorating the room. Dead people don't hold the light as surgeons work desperately to revive them. Lazarus is dead in the grave with no pulse and no sign of life, but God calls out to him and gives him life. Perhaps you're worried this morning. Surely there's some part of me that sets me apart from anybody else, from the unbeliever. Surely there's something in my life that I have contributed in some way that has helped God to bring me salvation. Something that sets me apart. I chose him. I wanted to be chosen. I was looking. Nobody else is looking. At the end of the day, can you hear yourself as you say that? Can you hear the pride dripping off of that as you scoff at those who do not believe? As you pat yourself on the back because you do. It's you glorifying in your personal decision. Christian, we have to come to the place where we think biblically about about what the Bible teaches about regeneration. Spirit moves, and that's why you believed. The Spirit moved in your life, and that's why you believed. You're no better than the next person. You're no smarter or more intelligent. By God's grace, He extended this work to your life. And you weren't even asking for it, you weren't even born. It was completely unsolicited. I'm going to ask you this Have you ever had a fake memory? You ever had a fake memory? Maybe you heard your kids share one time, or maybe you shared with your parents, hey, hey, remember that one time we went to the Grand Canyon and, and, and Nate had his ice cream and it fell off the overhang and it rolled down the, the, the cliff there and we were all just laughing and having a great time and your parents were thinking, what? You weren't even born yet. We went to the, we went to the Grand Canyon two years before you were even born. How silly. And you're kind of embarrassed. You're like, no, no, I remember it. Well, it's because... You heard the story, and now you've somehow reconstructed it, and in your mind's eye, you saw yourself there, and it was funny, and ultimately, you weren't there. It was a false memory. That's what we do. We do that. Sometimes we even do it when it comes to salvation. We have a false memory, as if we contributed to it in some way. We, we allowed God, that we reached our arm up, and he reached out to us. It's not true. You were dead. Dead men don't reach. You didn't even exist, spiritually speaking. The Spirit birthed you. So what do you think about this fact of of your regeneration being totally a work of God and that you contributed nothing to it? What do you think about that? What kind of emotions does that stir up in your heart? To think that you've not contributed to your own salvation. That it truly was a gift to you. With nothing else but gratitude and worship. So many questions might jump into your mind. And what about this? What about these people? What about this situation? What about that situation? Push those things to the side. Why? Why would he extend grace to you? You don't deserve it. Why would he extend grace to me? I don't deserve it. I was an enemy of God. He softened my heart. He gave me a new heart. He caused me to believe in him, to reap the benefits and the blessings of that regeneration. Church, ultimately we see here, even just in this analogy, that we have not contributed to our regeneration. We've not contributed to our salvation in... only in the fact that we made it possible because we needed it. We sinned. That's the only contribution that we've given to our salvation. So this is a deep doctrine, and it's one that Nicodemus was struggling with. Look at verse number 9 and verse 10. He says this, How can these things be? How can this be? 
Jesus' response is a bit embarrassing. He kinda, it's a kind two-glove backhand. He says, you're a teacher in Israel? You should know this stuff. I'm going to ask you, why, would, why should Nicodemus know this stuff? What is Jesus implying? What is he pointing to? He's saying this, as a teacher of the Old Testament, he should know the passages that speak of this. Specifically in Ezekiel chapter 36, there's a myriad of them. We'll, we'll lean into chapter 36 of Ezekiel, verses 25 and 26. I'm going to read that to you this morning. He says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Jesus is referencing this passage here. He's making it very clear that there is nothing that can be added There's no work that you can do. There's no uh, choice that Nicodemus can make. It's a work of God in the life of a believer. Jesus is saying, did you not know this? Do you not remember the Old Testament? Apparently Nicodemus had not thought of the Old Testament passage, this passage in that way. It was like some of the other Pharisees. He was too confident of the quality of his own obedience to think he needed much repentance, and let alone to have his whole life cleansed and to have his heart transformed to be born again. This passage supports Jesus' teaching about the unsolicited nature of the new birth, but it also provides further insight. I want to point it out to you. It also points out a cleansed life. This is what Jesus is referencing when he says, you must be born of water. Water typically is a reference to, to cleansing in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament. It's not that difficult to understand the analogy of water cleaning us. Hopefully you're familiar with that in, in your life. About how water is used to cleanse us. You're definitely aware that that's a necessity, and if you are aware of that, you're also aware of this, that you stink. It's an odd thing for a pastor to say of the congregants, but I don't mean to say that you stink physically, but spiritually speaking, we do. We are in need of a cleansing. This passage in Ezekiel, it points to the idols, it points to the sin and the life of the Israelites. In the words of Job's friend, I'm going to read it to you this morning, Job chapter 25, verses 4 through 6. Listen to what his friend offers to Job. He says, how then can a man be right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in my eyes. And how much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm. What is he saying? He's saying there's no hope for us. We're filthy. We're filthy. As dead people, Physically, spiritually speaking, God looks to us. He says, I'm going to extend my work. I'm going to regenerate their lives. I'm going to bring them to life, even though they've not asked me for it. I'm going to cause them to ask me for it. I'm going to cause them to want this. I'm going to cause them to want to be clean. This morning, if you see in your life a similar summary to what Job's friend offers here. You're a worm. You cannot be clean. You can't be pure before God, then there's hope because that's a sign that the Spirit of God has worked in your heart, that you would even desire to be cleansed. It's not just the desire that that God gives us. He gives us much more than that. He actually gives us the fulfillment of it. He actually gives cleanses us. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and, I'll, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. You shall be clean. He's saying that. You will be clean. All the filth and stains from the past will be removed and this is the promise of the new birth. It will all be cleansed away. The wrongs against God and man wiped away. Cleansed. This is another aspect of the new birth. This is another aspect of being born again. 
We see another clue in here. It's not just being cleansed, but it's also new life. We also see new life. There's, there's no in-between state either. You're not kind of pregnant. You either are pregnant or you are not pregnant. It's one or the other. Now, depending on what state you are in the, the nine months, you might say, well, she's kind of pregnant. No, you either are or, or, are you, or you're not. You're either dead or you're alive. This new life that we've been promised from God, it's not partial, it's there. It exists. Now, a baby, when it's first born, when you're first born again, you might think, well, that, they're not complete. It's not final. No, they are. The birth is done. They exist. Right? They're either alive or they're dead. They're, they're, they're either born or they're not. They're pregnant or they're not. It's one or the other. And this new life, it's instantaneous. It's not temporary. It's not partial. It's instantaneous. Look at Ezekiel chapter 36. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'm not a surgeon. I'm not a heart doctor. You don't take one out, wait a long time, put part of another one in, right? What do you do? You take one out and you put the new one in. This is a promise that we have. If you this morning are born again, you have been given a new life. It's made clear in every way. The the regenerate one is made new. The old is gone and the new has come. And before the new birth... uh, before the, you're, you're seeking your own happiness. You're, you're seeking peace of mind. You're, you're seeking relief from guilt. You're seeking a meaningful life and, and a swarm of other things that God can give. You're not seeking God. You're seeking his gifts. But when the Holy Spirit of God works in the life of a believer, when he regenerates them, he changes the very nature of your soul. And the reality is that the person's heart is beating for God now. And before it never had. Before, it wanted its own. And now it wants God. This is the effect of the, the blowing the spirit, the wind going into the soul, as we see in verse number 8. And it's interesting that Jesus says that you can't even see the kingdom. He says you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. You can't even see the kingdom of God. We think about this new life. We've been given a new heart. We've been given a new spirit. Ultimately, though, we've been given a new sight. As a new, as a new life, we see things differently. The, the same burden that you used to have, now you see it as an opportunity. This is one of the effects of the new life. What used to be considered a pleasure now is considered a disdain. You see things differently. But not only do you see things differently, but you also see different things. You see a world that is now full of the glory of God. You see souls that are on their way to hell and separation from God. These are the things that we see in the new life with new eyes. This is part of the kingdom of God. And again, the the results are instantaneous. There's a growing process. There's a strengthening process. But it is what it is from day one. It's a new life. It's different. But not only does the Bible teach us, not only does John 3 teach us that the, rege- the, the regenerate life is a new life, and not just a revived one, but it's also, it teaches a rescued life. It's also a rescued life. To be rescued is to be saved. No doubt you're familiar with the the Bible's term salvation. Saved, rescued. Titus 3, 5 tells us that he saved us, not because of works of righteousness done by us, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Spirit. The book of Numbers, it recounts the story of the brazen serpent. No doubt you can remember that. The Israelites, they were in a bad way. There they were in the wilderness. They were grumbling and they were complaining about God and Moses. And God punishes them 
for their rebellion. For their anarchy. He's, he sends poisonous snakes into the camp. And then the people really begin to complain. Then things go from bad to worse. And in desperation, they cry out to Moses, Help us! Intercede for us! Help us! Send us help! We're dying! Moses goes to God and he says, God, send relief. Help them. God says, I want you to take a brazen serpent. I want you to put it on a tall pike or post. I want you to put that in the middle of the camp. You tell the people that when they're bitten, when they're in danger, when they're dying, in their pain, to look to the serpent and they'll be rescued. To look. This is the story that Jesus is pointing to in in verse 13. Look down at verse 13. It says, No one has ascended into heaven except for he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus was being challenged to turn to Jesus For the new birth, and in much the same way as the ancient Israelites were commanded to turn to the brown snake for new life. And then, and only then, would they be rescued. I want to point out a few similarities between what Jesus is trying to say here. The first is this, that death is viewed as a punishment of sin. That's a fact. Death is viewed as a punishment for sin. The Bible says that the wages, the payment of our sin is death. It's not just something the ancient Israelites faced there in the wilderness. It's something that we face today. And not just a physical, but a spiritual death. This is what Jesus is pointing to. So as he speaks of himself, he's saying, I'm the solution. Because not only is death viewed as a punishment for sin, but number two, God provides a solution to the uh, the problem. God has provided a solution to the problem. That's another similarity between Jesus, the gospel, and the Israelites there in the wilderness. The third is this. The solution is an object or a person raised up high for people to see. Jesus is pointing to that as well. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so will the Son of Man, he will also be lifted up for people to see. The fourth similarity is this. The means of healing is believing. It's looking at the object in faith. Believing in that object that is raised high. It's beautiful. Jesus points back to that Old Testament passage. And those who have been born again have been rescued from death unto life. You've been rescued. If you are regenerate, if the Spirit of God has worked in your heart, you have been rescued. You've been saved from death unto life. It's not just a physical life. This is another point, another aspect of this spiritual regeneration is eternal life. Eternal life. In verse 15, it says that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And it refers to the unending duration of of this kind of life. It's a life that is without end. That's eternal life. It's the new life that results from being born again, being born of water and being born of spirit. We saw in verse 5. This is the result of it. Eternal, unending. And to a Jew with the background and and convictions of of Nicodemus, to understand and to see the kingdom of God was to participate in, in the kingdom at the end of the age to experience eternal resurrection life. That though in this life he may die, he anticipated the resurrection in the end to be brought back to life and to abide in the kingdom of God. That is what Nicodemus was experiencing, believing. That's what he, was, that's what he would have heard anyway. So the kingdom of God encompasses life eternal. It, and it, it talks about God's primary reign over man. The submission of, of man to God. Glad submission. 
The kingdom of God signifies God's rule in men's lives. So how does one gain this life? We've talked so much this morning about this life, about regeneration. How do we gain it? You might might see the conundrum, you might see the problem here that Jesus is telling him he must be born again, but even in the analogy, there's the problem. I can't be born again. I, I must be born again, and yet I can't be born again. This is a problem. This is what we face this morning. So what are we to do? Nicodemus wasn't able to and likely didn't even wish to be born again, to be regenerate by the Spirit. But this is what happens when the Spirit of God gives new birth. The sinner believes. The final point. Let me ask you this question. Why did Nicodemus come at night? Let's speculate for a moment. Why did he come at night? I believe John chapter 12, verse 42, gives us some insight to that. Why would he come at night? Verse 42, chapter 12 says, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Whether or not Nicodemus is one of these brothers lived in fear or not, we, we're not sure, but we do know this, that Nicodemus was afraid. He may not have been that guy, but we know he was afraid. We also could conclude that, that, that he didn't understand. So how could he believe he was afraid? How could he truly make the move he was afraid? But also, how could he make the move he didn't understand? Look in verse 9. How can these things be? Plural. He says, I don't understand the new birth. How can it happen? How can we even verify it? How can it be observed? How can I test it? I've not seen it. How do I know these things are true? Besides that, how is it the work of spirit and not man, he says? That doesn't make any sense. How is it God that does the work and not me? Can I contribute nothing? See, for a man that had everything, it was difficult for him to understand how he didn't need to spend that. And how that wouldn't get him what he needed. He didn't understand. How could he? Let me ask you this question. Have you ever wondered the same things? Have you ever wondered why it is that God would not allow you to contribute to your own salvation? Have you? usually don't think of it from that perspective. Usually we think of it from the other perspective. Maybe you've asked this question. How can the new birth even take place? Whether it's a work of man and God or not, how can that even take place? Maybe you've even looked around in your own life and you've doubted whether or not you could be rescued. Maybe from the other side, you've doubted whether you could even be rescued. Whether you're too hopeless of a case, that, you've, that you're too far gone, too, too lost for God to send his spirit to regenerate your heart, to give you a new spirit. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. I'm not sure. I've struggled with both of these questions at different times and in different forms and fashions. We see here Nick, he's just, he's amazed. He's stuck in disbelief. This is where all of us are. Headlong, going the wrong way, dead in our sins. I think of the the story of the Apostle Paul, or Saul. Now, in his, uh, his, set in his ways, set in his cultural uh, upbringing, in his traditions, chasing even after the destruction of Christians, our brothers and sisters, what happens? God intervenes. He stops him dead in his tracks. And in that moment, in that instant, he hears the voice of Jesus calling out to him. 
and he's regenerate. And his life has changed. This is the story of Nicodemus. I imagine as the sun begins to set in his own life, he's an old man. He wonders how much longer he has. Maybe in his old age he gets up and wonders, is this my last day? He comes to the conclusion that no, it's not, but it is the last day for somebody else. Because on that particular day in Nicodemus' life, outside of the city there's a celebration. Inside and outside of the city there's a public execution. As Nicodemus makes his way down the winding trail outside of the city to the place where the terrible criminal will be snuffed out. He walks up the hill. He's tired. It's been a long week, late nights, emotional roller coaster as he thinks about the festivities and also the the heaviness of what's taking place. As he gets to the top of the hill, he looks to the criminal. He looks to the cross, and these words ring in his ears, lifted up. He hears lifted up, but it's weird, it's odd, because the time that he hears it this time, it's, it's, it's different. He's heard it before. He remembers hearing those very words, lifted up, but the last time, it wasn't as sweet This time it's heavy like honey on his tongue. It's not bitter. It's not confusing like before. He remembers the Son of Man must be lifted up. And in that moment, as he looks to the cross, something has changed in that old man's heart. He felt new skin, as it were. Even the smell of a a baby after a bath. What had happened? Something was different. Something was new in this man's life. And I believe that when Nicodemus saw Jesus on the cross, it became clear to him that the lifting up, the exaltation of Jesus took place on that brutal block of wood, on that forsaken site outside of Jerusalem. When Nick saw Jesus lifted up, the Spirit worked the new birth in Jesus. I don't know if that's exactly how it went down, but I believe it did happen. John chapter 19, verses 39 through 40, it says this. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. The same Nicodemus that went to Jesus by night now boldly took him down from the cross. He was risking it all. He had counted the cost. If you remember the Bible verse that we memorized this week as a church, financially, financially, relationally, he was a different man. I believe that he was born again. In church regeneration, it always, listen, it always occurs at the foot of the cross. Always. It always occurs at the foot of the cross. And the power that we have as Christians comes and is found at the foot of the cross. I believe that Nicodemus was regenerate. As Jesus was lifted up and he looked upon him, the Spirit worked in his heart. That's my hope for you this morning that that would be your testimony. That you too would be regenerate. That you too could say, when I saw Jesus lifted up, something changed in me. A moment ago, we talked about the aspects of, the, of regeneration. The final one that we didn't talk about was thankfulness. The life of a Christian, the life of a regenerate one is a thankful one. So if you're a believer here this morning, I want to invite you just to pause for a moment. And to think about the work of Christ on the cross. That final aspect that he's called us to a, a thankful life. Because there's nothing in and of ourselves that we could do to be, to be found worthy. There's no act that we could commit. No move we could make. No special incantation that we could speak. 
It's a work of God in our lives. So with gratitude, would you express that to him? You weren't asking for it. It's unsolicited that now you're clean, that now you have a new life, and now you have a life that never ends, and not to serve yourself, but to serve your Savior. Have you been born again? Is there evidence in your life of the new birth? Do you say that, can you say that there's a specific time when regeneration occurred in your life? If you can't say that for sure, that you're born of the Spirit of God, I plead with you to look to the cross as Jesus is high and lifted up. There at the cross, we find redemption. We find forgiveness of our sins. And there, the, the work of the Spirit takes place. Right before we close, I just want to end with this. As we look to the cross, as we gather as a body, even here this morning, around this figure, figurative cross, and Jesus is lifted up out of his word, I pray that you'll find hope in evangelism. I pray that you'll find hope in evangelism. So what do you mean by that? Here, here's what I mean. There's no fancy tactic or method that you can come up with, and while those things are good and well, there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to cause the Spirit of God to regenerate somebody else, to cause somebody to be born again. And you might say, well, then why do we do it? Why do we evangelize? Why do we share the gospel? Because we've been commanded to. We have been commanded by God to lift up Jesus. And the promise is this, church, that when we lift Jesus up, he says of himself, I will draw all men to myself. So as you go this week, whether it be in your cubicle or on your street or in your own home, church, lift up Jesus because he's promised that when he's lifted up, all men will be drawn to him and the spirit there will do his work. Hope and evangelism. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for this time together this morning as we look at your word. So we're encouraged that you are the sole initiator of all faith. Holy Spirit, we recognize that you alone are the one that works in the life of an unbeliever and brings him to the place of faith in Jesus. So we don't try to take that from you or to pretend that we are some greater part than we are. You've invited us in and you've called us to be faithful and so we pray that we would do that and that as a result, Jesus, you would be glorified and the saints would be saved. God, we pray these things not in our name and not for our glory or even for our own pleasure. Primarily, God, we, we pray these things because you've called us to. And now as we prepare to go, we pray that you would prepare our heart spirit, that you'd go with us and that you would do the work of regeneration, a work that we cannot do in and of ourselves. We ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus. Amen.